Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello, welcome, and Merry Fort Christmas. In this episode, we look at a second Seminole War fort with a rather peculiar name, Fort Christmas. The background to its construction is that General Eustace of the United States Army, under the command of General Thomas S. Jessup, moved a column south from Fort Mellon in present-day Sanford on the 17th of December, 1837. The column consisted of 3rd Regiment of Artillery, four companies of the 3rd and 4th Dragoons, and four companies of Alamonteers. A train of 50 wagon, 20,000 rations moved with it. They hacked their way through palmettos and cabbage palm hammock, pine barriers and scrub, building roads, upwards of 20 bridges that were from 20 to 70 feet long and seven causeways. From the 25th through the 27th of December, 1837, these troops built a supply depot. They called it Fort Christmas, having started it on Christmas day. The original fort was located about one half mile north. It was on a creek they named Christmas Creek. On the opposite side of the creek was an abandoned Indian village referred to as an abandoned Indian village called Powell's Town. With us to discuss Fort Christmas is Joseph Adams. Adams is a recreation specialist at the park. The historian from Mercer University in Macon, Georgia, has done graduate work in historic preservation. His main job is interpretation, and he presents educational programs mainly to elementary age students, although he's done preschool through graduates. He transferred to Fort Christmas Historical Park about 23 years ago. Joseph Adams, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Joseph, they usually named forts in that era after the commanding officer or somebody who had given a significant contribution, Camp Izzard. This was called Fort Christmas, possibly for obvious reasons. Tell us what the backstory is. Fort Christmas is an odd name. Essentially, the Army was building a chain of forts along the St. John's River to use as supply depots. They arrived on Christmas Creek, Christmas Day, 1837, and started constructing the fort, and it would take them four, uh, three days to build the fort. And I had several thousand men working on the project, and so they were moving along the river, building roads, causeways, bridges, and of course forts about a day's march apart. If you notice, most Seminole Indian War forts are named after either military leaders or political leaders, but our fort's named after the holiday. It was an unauspicious occasion. They continued to name forts after military leaders long after Fort Christmas was built. What was the reason the Army built a fort at that location at that time? Well, they had decided that they wanted to push Seminole south and around them, and they thought the St. John's River would be a good way to transport materials and supplies using the river. What they discovered is the St. John's River was navigable much further south than they originally thought. How was it that the Army didn't know this previously? One of the problems with fighting the Seminole Indian War, especially the Second Seminole Indian War in Florida, is the Army didn't know what they were getting into. There weren't good maps. Nobody had really mapped the interior of Florida. They knew as much about the interior of Florida as they did about the interior of China. So they started too soon, and then they discovered it was just easier to supply along the coast rather than try to go down the St. John's River. How far was Fort Christmas from the coast? Oh, probably about maybe 20 miles. It depends on how you look at it, because you get over to <laughs> you get over to Titusville or Indian River City, and it, there's the Banana River and the Indian River and that sort of thing before you actually get to the Atlantic. But they were going in that area. So a couple competing interests in where to put the fort. 
How long did they keep Fort Christmas? The Star Fort was really used only for a brief period of time. They started construction Christmas Day, and by the end of February the next year, they were gone, never to return. Where did they go next? They moved further south, and then they also started plying the Army by sea along the coast. Essentially, the interior of Florida back then was heavily forested. There were a lot of swamps. It was hard to build the roads and the bridges and everything, so it just became easier to supply along the coast. Also, pretty much all the civilization was along the coast. It's easier to walk along the sandy beaches of Florida than try to get through the interior at that point. The idea was to have a force moving down both coasts and kind of through the interior and then try to surround them. They had a series of posts about 10 miles apart going along that route. How did that fare? It didn't really work. The Seminoles tended to do more of a guerrilla war, so they just didn't stand and fight. They would essentially, as you're moving along the road, they would fire at you one or two shots and then disappear into the, the dense forest or swamp. The Army, you're, you're moving along, but you never know when you're going to get shot at. And it's one or two shots. Even if everybody immediately turns and tries to chase the attacking force, there's nobody to catch. And so after a while, it can really wear on you. Seminoles just didn't go to West Point and know that they're supposed to line up on a nice field and shoot at each other and whoever's left sitting on that field wins. Why was Fort Christmas constructed where it was? The presence of good water, high ground. Of course, Christmas Creek flows into the St. John's River, so this is a good place to build a fort. The Army is building forts in good locations. There's water, high ground. It's a good place to build a fort. So if you think about it, essentially anywhere there's a town or city of any size here in Florida, there was probably a second Seminole War fort there or, or some sort of fortified camp. And a lot of our towns and cities get their name from the fort that was there. Our area was Fort Christmas up until 1892 when we applied for a post office here in Christmas, Florida. And the Postal Department looked at our application and went, Fort Christmas, no more forts. It makes it too hard to sort the mail. So we just became Christmas. Okay, this was not an outpost for a last stand. What was the purpose of Fort Christmas? Uh, it's a supply depot. So you have materials and supplies here. So as you're moving a force of men, you can go from one fort to another to another. And then you're also not camping out at night in the wilderness. You're actually near a fortification, so there's more protection. The closest large city to us is Orlando. And one of the stories for the name Orlando is from Orlando Reeves. On guard duty, they were camped out at Lake Eola, and a similar Indian snuck up on them, kind of rolled up like a log, and before Orlando Reeves was killed, was able to get a shot off. And so they named the area Orlando after him. This is one of the stories. There's actually a plaque that was placed by Orlando high school students way back, probably in the 40s or 30s, I think. This was part of a string of forts that incrementally moved further south? Yeah, they continue to move further south and continue to build forts. Also, if you have the supplies already placed forward, the men who are following can use those supplies and don't have to carry them with them. If I can have a supply depot, then my men can move a lot faster with forward-placed supplies. They tended to march most of the time, and you, of course you had some mounted troops, and so they could only go so far in a day. They don't want to be caught out at night, so they like to camp around the fort. If they were properly supplied, you don't have to carry that much food. Or if you decide you want to push faster or push on or in a different direction, you can resupply at the fort. It was a tactical plan. It didn't quite work out the way they wanted to, so they switched to something going back to supplying along the coast. It was probably easier to move along the coast and then push in. Fighting the Seminoles was really hard. What was unique about fighting in Florida? Florida is unique in the fact that you normally think about 
going into winter encampments like Valley Forge during the Revolutionary War. Here in Florida, you fight fall and winter, and you go into encampments. A lot of the interior of the state's abandoned during the hot months of the year, the sickly season, and the troops pull back to the coast because flogging it out in the summer just all it does is make your troops sick. Actually, a lot more soldiers are going to die from all the different diseases and sicknesses here in Florida than will die from Seminole bullets. How many ways did the Army use to get supplies to its troops? Probably they did some over land and then some down the river. Since the fort has such a short history, we don't know that much about it. We know where our fort looked like. There was an Army surgeon Jarvis, Nathan Jarvis, who describes our fort as being built of pine pickets, 80 feet square with two blockhouses, 20 foot square each. Where is the place of Fort Christmas in history? And why rebuild Fort Christmas as opposed to some other fort? To be honest, our fort is a footnote and a very small footnote in the history of the Second Civil Indian War. What happens is the decision to build the replica. In 1976, the United States is celebrating 200 years of independence from Great Britain. Jay Blanchard was head of Parks and Recreation at that time and loved forts. Whenever he traveled, he went and visited forts. He decides that recreating Fort Christmas would be a very good project. It would allow Parks and Recreation to talk about the Second Civil Indian War, which tends to be a forgotten war. Uh, I come along and I say, remember the Alamo, and everybody's, yeah, okay. Then. But you say, remember Dade's Massacre, and feel like, Dade who? The fort part of Fort Christmas follows a plan of other forts in the area in design, but that doesn't make Fort Christmas any less unique. Our fort looks like pretty much a whole bunch of forts here in Florida. It, you know, the way they were constructed, they were pretty much used the same plan. Our fort uses the same plan that they'll use out west. And so what makes our fort important is the story we tell, essentially, not so much that it was, I mean, it's really cool that it was built on Christmas Day, but essentially there were a bunch of forts built here in Florida during the Second Civil Indian War. You learn about the Second Civil Indian War itself, which is almost a forgotten war. And then we try to point out that, hey, a lot of towns here in, you know, just like Christmas is not actually in a town, it's an area, but a lot of towns and areas here in Florida get their name from that second Civil War fort. Maitland, Florida, Fort Maitland. Sanford today, but it was Mellonville for Fort Mellon. A lot of the areas around us, uh, there's an area like Christmas called Fort Gatlin that's outside of Orlando. And it was the local fort here in Orange County, really. The Fort Gatlin was underneath the Naval Underwater Sound Laboratory, so you couldn't use that one. As far as the location of your Fort Christmas, how close is that to the original Fort Christmas? Essentially, our fort is a mile south of the original location, although we don't know the exact location. We know generally where it was. No one's ever found the actual fort site. But we had the park here. It was an opportunity to build something in the park that would bring people from outside the community and make the park a little bit more usable by the, the citizens of Orange County. Have you acquired the land nearby where you think Fort Christmas might have been? No, we have not. The property that it is most likely on is private property, and families that own the land are not too interested in having any research done on the land. One of the interesting things is years ago, a Florida State historic marker was placed on the road close by to where we think the fort might have been, and that marker disappeared. Boom, gone. And years later, a person who was just visiting the park said something about, I guess something had been said about the marker having disappeared. And the person was like, well, you know, what would you do if you found the marker? And we're like, well, you know, 
we'd have to talk to the state. Well, a couple of days later, that marker appeared on the front porch of what was then our visitor center. Now, this was before I came on staff. The state of Florida was contacted about the marker, and it was decided to place the marker in front of our fort. So we have a we have the historic marker for the fort actually at our fort rather than up on the road where it might disappear again. So why don't you think the local landowners want to have an archaeological survey done on the land? One of the problems is there's a concern that if we find out where the fort is, people start trespassing on the land and digging holes and causing trouble, that sort of thing. And then there's always the fear that through eminent domain, the county, the state, or even the national government will want to come along and take their land. Although Fort Christmas may have followed the design of other forts, a lot of these forts were purpose-built to the terrain that they sat on. How does Fort Christmas fit into that? Our fort is a replica. It is, from the best we know, the right size, the right massing. We know it's the outer walls 80 feet square with two blockhouses 20 foot square each. We know from just what was built at the time period, looking at the records back in 1976, what we needed to build. But our fort is built out of creosote logs with cement chinking, and it has proper climate control for the artifacts that are inside the building. So it's the right size of massing, but it, it's not an exact replica. Our fort design with the blockhouse, I can build a blockhouse. No wall, just a blockhouse, and that's a fort. It will protect you from the symbols, not as well as the design we have. I could build just a single blockhouse and a, a stockade around that. I could build it like our fort with our blockhouses are on opposite corners of the 80 feet square. So blockhouse on the front of the fort protects the front wall and the west wall, while the blockhouse on the back protects the back wall and east wall. So I have overlapping fields of fire with my two blockhouses. And the blockhouses are two stories tall, with the second floor overlapping the first floor. I could build a fort with three blockhouses or one in each corner with four blockhouses. It all depends on what you need and the terrain. The terrain affects it, and then you could have a, more, a much more complex fort. What benefit might there be from not actually being located on the Fort Christmas site? Very often that is done. You put the replica away from the actual archaeological site. Unless you think that you'll never have the money to do the archaeology, you don't want to put the fort on top. There are several places where the fort site is, is actually underneath the parking lot and it protects the site. And it, They just have to remove the layer of parking lot to get to the site whenever they do have the money to do the excavation, but it also keeps the casual person who wants to dig a hole from damaging the site. Forts get abandoned, but the area they built the fort on had been cleared. That made it attractive for civilian settlement. Yes, there are actually places in Florida where at the end of the war, there were forts that were abandoned here and there, and people would actually settle and live inside the fort while they were building their own house and cabin. One of the cattle barons here in Florida lived in a fort for a period of time while he was getting set up. But even after the war, and what's left of the Seminoles are down in the Everglades. It's a roof over your head. You may have to patch the roof a little bit, but while I'm trying to clear the land, build the cabin, I can stay in the fort or what's left of it, the ruins, and that saves me from living in a palmetto house. Because your other option is building a frame and covering it with palmetto, which some of the pioneers did and lived in those for two or three years. We might call it the Fort Christmas Complex now, because in addition to the fort, you have a number of other historic buildings. But that wasn't the case initially. At the time the replica was built, it was just building the replica. It was a museum. It was the second county-owned museum in the, in the county. And they essentially wanted to be able to talk about the Second Civil Union War, 
they wanted to be able to talk about the Seminole Indian and that pioneer period that followed the Second Seminole Indian War. Now, in the Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, 1989, we had a big freeze, and it destroyed an orange grove that was next to us that was on about five acres. And in 1990, the five acres were bought by the county, and we started our historic site, and we started moving buildings here. So we have, but the buildings are, the oldest building we have is 1870. We're not exactly sure of the exact date, but 1870. So there's a giant space between the abandonment of Fort Christmas and our first historic structure. All our historic structures were moved here. We are probably at the end of moving structures because there's really nothing left to move in Christmas. And we don't have the budget nor the interest really to go much further because it would just be very hard to move a structure into the area. We are very lucky in the fact that when we decided we were going to do the historic site, we formed a historical society, a group of locals, and they are the ones that actually went out and helped us find the houses. And it's a community project. And when the community building something like that, you can move mountains. You take something like Fort Foster over in Hillsborough County State Park. They had a very strong, very strong community support both locally but also throughout the Seminole Indian War community, the people who reenacted. And they produced quite a bit of data, including a couple of books. Uh, there's The Men of Fort Foster, which is a not a huge book, but it's a very good one. It has a lot of illustrations and it's a storehouse of knowledge, information. Community involvement is, is paramount to a history site like ours. I'll be honest with you, I don't know exactly how they got the money. There was an awful lot of money '76 to do historic things, a lot of grants, a lot of people getting excited. There are an awful lot of museums which started in 1976. When I sent you my biography, I talked about the Georgia Agorama. 1976 it starts. Westville Historic Handicrafts is close by 1976 or Historic Westville now. 1976 really starts a heavy black powder project in the national parks. The Bicentennial just was a watershed for history, some of it better than others. We are lucky in the fact that in 1976, Orange County provided at least some of the money for the fort. I don't know where all the funding came from. It was a brief period of time when I wasn't living in Orange County. <laughs> I remember the Bicentennial with people getting in covered wagons and trying to go from the East Coast to the West Coast. Of course, they went on the highways, so it was a little easier than the, the original trek. And then some of the highways did follow trails that were used. If you think about Florida, some of our major highways run along what were arteries for moving troops during the Second Millennium War. I-4 takes you from the East Coast to the West Coast, well, or the West Coast to the East Coast, depending on which side you live on. The route was used during the Second Millennium War to move people across the state. Although it was in 1976 that a replica of Fort Christmas was constructed, the land itself was a park for some number of years. Tell us about the evolution of that. One of the benefits of building the fort on its site it's at right now is that essentially when people started settling in the Christmas area, where our park is, what we call the original 10 acres, has been a meeting place for those people since the first people arrived. There was probably an oak hammock in the middle of Piney Woods, I'm guessing, because we have beautiful oaks here at the park. And it creates an opening in the, essentially in the wilderness, and so people would meet here. By the late 1800s, Florida Times Union, which was essentially the newspaper for the east coast of Florida, somebody in our community, and we do not know who it was, would write articles. And they talk about so-and-so had a party at Simmons Grove or so-and-so did something at Simmons Grove. Well, our park was Simmons Grove. In 1930, the land, which makes up our original 10 acres, was donated to Orange County to be a park forever. 
And very soon after the donation, a WPA built what we call Pavilion One. And the local people dug an outhouse, put in a well, and a baseball diamond. The baseball field we have now is not the original, but up until 1976, all that was here was that one pavilion and the baseball diamond and an outhouse. What will happen is they'll build a fort. In the early 80s, across from the fort, they put in a visitor center. So we had the visitor center, the fort, and the pavilion one. As time went on, they added two more pavilions to the park. They added a basketball court, a tennis court. And then in the 90s, we started the historic site. We moved our first house here in 93, had it restored by 95. And by December of 2000, we had seven houses on our historic site. And then we came on the other side of the fort, another 10 acres we'd bought. We put school for Christmas, the lunchroom, and a 1953 Harton house. About a year or two ago, we moved the eighth structure to house the post office for Christmas onto the site. We have not restored it yet, but we hope to in the near future. We had the land already, and that was one of the things that made building the fort here easy is the fact that we already own the land. If we had had to go out and purchase land, that would have slowed the project down. As it is, we started mid-1976 building the fort and finished it in 1977, December of 77. So it took us a year and a half to build the fort. Now, one of the fun things, I have been attached to this part for well over 20 years. And when I first started here, there were people who would come back with their children and grandchildren and say, I built that fort because our fort Christmas was built by... Orange County Parks and Recreation, the workers, our plumbers, our electricians, our carpenters built it. It's not something that we paid to have built. And so, well, we had a little help from the Army Corps of Engineers. They, a couple of the heavy things they helped us lift up, like the front gate. But it's a matter of pride for a lot of the people who helped build it in 1976-77. Unfortunately, a lot of those people are beginning to pass away now, and, and they don't come out as often. What do visitors find when they go inside the fort? Our replica fort. We have two blockhouses. They're two stories tall. The front blockhouse on your left as you come through the gate deals with the Seminole Indians, the Second Seminole Indian War. We have a 17-minute video on the three Seminole Indian Wars. And then the other blockhouse has exhibits on the pioneer period of Christmas in East Orange County. We have a storehouse which has exhibits on, on tools and transportation. We have a, now not during the Second Seminole Indian War, but later on there was a steamboat, the Eliza Hancock, and we have a model of it that went up and down the St. John's River. The St. John's River is kind of interesting in the fact that groups of people would use it for transportation, kind of a highway, and it gets used and then it, gets, it falls into disuse, it gets used, it falls into disuse, and so it's had its ups and downs throughout history. The unfortunate thing is for well over 30 years, we had a group of people who came out in the spring, normally late March, early April, and then the weekend before Thanksgiving that reenacted Second Civil War and then talked about the time period. A few years ago, we quit doing the, the March-April militia encampment, as we called it. This past year, we had canceled already because of COVID the previous year. This year, we got together and talked about it, and we we're not able to put that on anymore. The, the people who have been doing it are, are getting too old. They promise to come out whenever I need them, but they're just not going to do the encampment anymore, so we've lost that 
unfortunately. The guys have gotten too old to do it, and the younger people just aren't getting into the reenacting. And see, our guys, they do everything from almost Revolutionary War all the way to Spanish-American. They were sad to have to give it up, but they just, last few years, we've had less and less people who've been able to come out. It's an important part of history that's now becoming more underrepresented because they can't come out any longer. You did have an event in December, however. It just wasn't a Seminole War encampment. This month we had Cracker Christmas, and that is the folk art craft festival. We have people we refer to as crafters, people who make handmade crafts to sell. And then on the historic site, we have demonstrators, people who are doing basket weaving, chair caning, uh, weaving, spinning, soap making, blacksmithing. My demonstrators are beginning to slowly disappear as they get too old to come out. We're hoping in this year to, to hit a bunch of events and start recruiting more people. <laughs> Our second Civilian War demonstrator, in the past, they had tried to come out to Cracker Christmas, but there are just so many people, it's hard to do a real good demonstration. There's just too many people around. Anybody who's, in, who's doing that kind of thing likes to be able to do a firing demonstration. And with a crowd, you can't do that. There's a safety concern. So militia encampment and demonstration aside, in a non-COVID year, what type of events does Fort Christmas sponsor? Cowboy reunion at the end of January. And then the first full week of February, we had a Living History Festival, which essentially it's co-sponsored with a gentleman named Jimmy Sawgrass, quite famous in the eastern United States for, for his work. And we do everything from prehistory Native American all the way up through Civil War, about 14 to 17 camps, and the kids go around every 15 minutes to a different camp. We also did, February is also our Ag Fest, and then every other year, February was also the opening for the Orlando Wetlands, which is a park that really butts up to our corner because they did not have the facilities to do a really good opening on their own property. They did it on our property and then would bus people over for tours of the wetlands. And let's see, March was Bluegrass Festival. In April, we had a local family that did a program, and it was really large, called Old Timers Day. And essentially, they suffered from everybody getting too old to do it, and nobody really wanted to step up and take over from the family. And then it's quiet during the summer. We're like the soldiers. We don't want to do anything in the heat. And then in the fall, we had a program called Farm, which is based on my Living History Festival. There's different stations dealing with agriculture, from potato farmers to forestry to cattle industry. And students again come out and go every 15 minutes to a different station. We used to have our militia encampment, like I said, in April and the weekend before Thanksgiving. And then, of course, our largest special event, our uh, Cracker Christmas. How many days a year is Fort Christmas open, and is it open on Christmas? We are open, actually, uh, uh, because of some things we've done recently, we are actually open every day of the week now. We're closed on Mondays and county holidays, and... The staff got together and with management and upper management and said, we're getting so many people coming out on these Mondays and these county holidays and we're closed. Why can't we be open? And so we are now open every day of the year except Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. The park is actually physically closed those two days. Yeah, it is ironic. And a lot of person, people who complain is like, oh, well, we wanted to come out Christmas. We'd love for you to come out, but we want to be with our families also. The Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, are the, those are the only two days that Orange County parks are closed. And now we we are even open, our historic areas are even open during the county holidays, which is what we did this year. We decided we were going to do that. Because of the kind of park we have, we have a lot of fun out here. And we have a lot of community support, so we can have a lot of fun out here with our events. It's coming out to Cracker Christmas or Living History Festival or any of our other events. 
they're all enjoyable events, both for the visiting public and for the staff. We have the same volunteers year in and year out, and these events bring our volunteers out, and it's fun to see them. They're like family, catching up with your family. All right, Joseph, so we have this park in the area of the original historic Fort Christmas built during the Second Seminole War. Why is it important for the public to know about the Second Seminole War and, of course, by extension, Fort Christmas? The Second Seminole War is what opens up Florida to settlement. Before the Second Seminole War, yes, we had people settling in St. Augustine and Pensacola and along the coast. But when the Army comes in here in the Second Seminole War, it starts to map the area. And if you look at the names of lakes and rivers and streams, they're named for military and civilian leaders. It opens up Florida to settlement. People may have, even today, still be settling along the coast if it hadn't been for the war. The idea of the Seminole Indian Wars, they're important. At the end of the first Seminole Indian War, we put the Seminoles on a reservation, which was the center part of the state, because we thought the land was worthless. And then Seminoles come along, and they can't really grow enough food to feed themselves. There's a problem. The land doesn't produce really good crops for them. But they're able to raise cattle, horses, and that's part of what precipitates the second Seminole Indian War, is people coming in and, and stealing their cattle and their horses. And, of course, they steal them back and the raiding back and forth. The study of the Second Civilian War is important, and it's something that's kind of sloughed over in, in your history classes and in schools. That covers it. Joseph Adams, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. All right. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Rudy Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.